Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Maurice O'Keefe, and you are very welcome to this week's podcast. The Kilmichael Ambush fought during the War of Independence, and the voices you're about to hear are historical recordings taken from the Irish Life and Lore Archive. It's an organisation which is dedicated to the recording and archiving of oral history. And every week we hope to bring to you a story that covers a century of change in Ireland. So to this week's podcast, in West Cork on the 25th of November 1920, on a quite country road near the village of Kilmichael, local volunteers, commanded by Tom Barry, staged an ambush on the auxiliary division of the RIC. And to find out more why this bloody ambush took place, I first spoke to Donald McSweeney, who lives in a remote country house known as a safe house during the Troubles in Ballyvorney, not far from the location of where the ambush took place. So the headquarters of the Cork No. 1 Brigade for a while in the time of the War of Independence. Shanna Hegarty was the Brigadier General in the Mid-Cork, the Mid-Cork region and he moved in here in the late 1920s. My goodness. And in this very room? This very, where, 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 yeah, at where this we very are. table where we are sitting down now. He did his work. On this table? Yeah. I asked Donald how much of an effect the War of Independence had on the local people. The topic of conversation when I was young actually. It was discussed several times and debated by the lo- local people in that meeting at street, street thing as we said at night. It was the topic of conversation quite often, more often than that actually. I mean it did cut across any previous attempts to the land war and other things that happened previously. That's what the sort of cut across all of them. It was more it was bigger. It con- it affected the people more, you see. They actually had the they actually had a fighting many people like living in that locality. Sort of it put it in the war zone. All the local people so they could they were very involved during the, the time of the troubles and they, leading up to the were, Civil War. Well they were, they had no choice actually. I mean when these fellows were on the chrome, when they arrived in September, C Company that who, who I think with that official title about the Lily RAC men, the the top fighting men of the, the best fighting men probably the British the British Army could produce, ex soldiers. Officially, auxiliary RIC men. Well, they had been driving around in our lorries. So they'd come to the visiting Bellevue about once a week, one night every week. They'd come around night and that was payday and they'd be firing shots on their way out. But one night they came unawares and that's what shot the, the engine of their lorries, I believe, in top of the village. And they'd been quite in the night, they shot Jim Lee Han. 
There were one of them said that they think they were, they were looking for blood. You know, the red of the pubs. And, My goodness, they, they, did. They, they were out to. So he's uh, all, one to of them said they were out for blood. Yeah. yeah. Well, they they had a vague idea that there was some fellow named Lehan and the volunteers probably, but there were several names of the volunteers. But they, they didn't have information. To, their information too good. But they met. They just cast him out of the house and shot him. Done a few yards down the road, shot so him in cold blood. He must have been taken by surprise because his pipe was in his hand when he was found dead. I think his pipe was in his hand and his tobacco bush was near him in the ground, I believe. So there was great... There must have been awful uh, bitterness and, and hatred for these people. There were. There were the, uh, I arrested one fellow in Munich, Bogal, right about that time. Shot report the ambush, I believe, about that time. And the, they beat him nearly unconscious in front of his mother. Young woman, they took him up then and they kept him in prison for a while. And he died years after from a ill treatment. But... Um, he was looking at that and killed him there and then. There was just driving two lorries. Uh, I remember one day there was a local volunteer and he was arrested. And while he was in jail, the neighbours helped out with digging into potatoes, about a mile back in there. And uh, they were digging potatoes in the field, a group of men, and the two lorries came down about a mile away. They came down the road over across. And the lorry, when the lorry saw them in digging spots away and the horizon, they opened fire. Well, it was good that they were burned back. They'd been scattered all over the place. They just opened fire. Just opened yeah. fire, yeah. And I saw them taking potatoes, I saw the women. Somebody made the excuse that they probably thought them in were drilling, but I don't think that that, that expect volunteers to be drilling out in the middle of the day like that. That day, after taking the spot, the right one fellow, he, he arrived here running, he was in a state of collapse. He was laid out in that seat there, I believe. I, was, I said they gave him a drop of whiskey and things to pull to revive him. All I could say was two lorry. Two lorry, two lorry. That's all I could say. He was really in a state of panic. Yeah. Do you see? He was. Well, people hadn't been used to fighting. They had heard about the First World War, right? But that was a few hundred miles away out in France. But uh, this was actually brought into their own, own doorsteps, as you might say. In the lead up to the Kilmichael ambush, the Black and Tans were causing much disturbance in West Cork. The O'Brien family, who were living in Kilbritain, were involved in the fight for freedom and they suffered greatly at the hands of the Black and Tans. And here Lena O'Brien tells the story. My father was arrested in 19, in the, the War of Independence. What happened was um, Uncle Michael Bryan was the captain of the old IRA. They were Clomboy Kilburton and that was the home place. And he died of um, quinsy. He choked because they couldn't get a doctor for the the Percival and them were watching the place. And um, the poor man died. And when he when he died, they walked him all the ways out to Mara, which is a way out not abandoned. And during the night, and they gave him a, a nunnery funeral. When they came home, my aunt, who was living at home then, she wrote my sister, her, her sister in Wales, and she wrote and told him that how Michael had died, and they had buried him during the night, and thank God she said, the British never knew anything about it. And she wrote back to her and they put the letter 
up on the window, the kitchen window, and the the window in English mm-hmm. stamp. And Percival happened to watch the place, and he saw the English stamp, and he got the letter and read it. And if he did, he arrested my dad. And dad was married, and my mum was expecting her first baby. And he was put into jail, and she had the baby, and uh, the doctor told the priest in Barnspital to go up to the house and baptize the baby because it wasn't going to live. Mm. And the priest had to walk through the glens. He was afraid that the British would capture him, and he baptized the baby. And the baby died. And my poor grandfather, John O'Brien, <clears throat> he had buried a son and he had a son in jail and he buried a, a, a grandchild. Dan Donovan had joined the local branch of the IRA in Bantry, West Cork, in the early part of the 1920s. And he wasn't long there before he was arrested by the auxiliaries. The auxiliaries that time, they were after coming to Glengariff, 11 miles from Bantry, and set up headquarters there. And one Sunday, when the people were going back from three, from uh, one o'clock mass, it was, I think, uh, they held up the people and began searching. And they caught me with the book, the volunteer book. They were being issued out at the time. I had the book on me after getting it the Sunday before, and I was arrested. So, I was, yeah, that was the time I was sent to Spike Island. And I gave six months there. After Dan was released from Spike Island Prison, he got involved again as a runner with the IRA. But being a runner, he needed a bike. Uh, So on one occasion, uh, with other volunteers, they tried to to get bikes out of the local bank in Bantry. The lower bank near near the water, but I remember four of us. And it wasn't raiding the bank we were. It was raiding the the bank premises for bicycles. You see, all the bicycles were taken up by the tans, and we had nothing to to deliver our dispatches with. So we thought then of making a few raids around, and the bank was naturally a place for for, for the bicycle or two. But when there was there was a raid after it then on, on, on some other crowd, all our bicycles were seized by the tans. Yeah. They made a general search. So I was taken to their headquarters as a prisoner. The O'Sullivan family on Bear Island, West Cork, was a staunch Republican house with most members of the family involved in the fight for freedom. 
extended members of the family were fighting in the Great War, and here John O'Sullivan explains. My father was in the IRA, and in fact, if you, that, that Martello tore up there, you'll find his name, POS 1916. He marked his name in there when he heard about the 1916 men being executed. Mm. And he's still there. He joined the IRA, and his brother, he was a second lieutenant. His brother was captain of the Bear Island section. And uh, and my mother wasn't coming on. My mother's brother was in the British Navy, and he was killed in the Jutland battle. And my father's uh, my father's aunt was married to a commander in the British Navy. And I have letters there. There's to write home. They were all worried about my father in case he get killed. And they'd be saying they were very religious. This he was a commander Coleman. John's father was lucky to survive a raid by the Black and Tans on the family home. Of course, I couldn't stay in Bahrain. They were on the run, around generally around Irees in Arden, yeah. about half a dozen miles beyond Castletown Bear. And uh, when they'd come in to visit their parents, they'd row in, of course, and my Uncle Jim was rowing in, and when he went to land, close to the West End, there was a big light shone in the strand. So he came down, and every time he'd go to land, the big light shone, so he turned around and went out back. And uh, that night, the auxiliaries of the Black and Tans mm. were around my neighbour's house. They got word mm. that uh, that he was going to come in. So he, there was no explanation for it. And, and uh, they'd surround my grandfather's house, and they'd, they had a revolver. It was the Scottish Barthers, and they'd uh, they'd one bullet in the chamber, they'd spin the chamber, they put up again my grandfather, up again his forehead, and they'd pull the trigger, and uh, he was never shot anyway. But I remember asking my father about it. I said, "What did grandfather think of him?" He said, "They were never all right. <laughs> they were bad. He wouldn't say bad word. He did his rosary be there. He was about the age I am now." Yeah. And, uh, well, if he was shot, he didn't mind. They all went to heaven that time, anyway. <laughs> and now to the Kilmichael ambush. And to recall exactly what happened, Donald McSweeney relives the terrible moments of battle on location of the ambush. These fellows had been leaving McCroom and travelling into the Dunmanway area. We were on the border, no, between McCroom area and the Dunmanway area. <coughs> on Sunday evenings, rather rough crowd. And... Uh, that he decided to take him on. Uh, sh- there hadn't been any shot fired at these fellas since they, arrived, since they had arrived in the country. They had a, had a free hand, and he decided to pretend to put a stop to it. So even though it wasn't his area here, he, he that, decided to go Yeah, because if they went down another half a mile, you see, they'd have come to the crossroads, and he, he couldn't intercept them there because he wouldn't know what direction, what road, which road they take. He had to intercept them before they reached the crossroads. And as you see, there's no suitable ambassade anywhere, even the sudden very suitable, he admitted it himself. But um, <coughs> the big problem was how to stop the lorries, how, to, how to, um, to make the lorries stop. You see, he couldn't block the road with the barrier because they'd have seen it coming along. So he got the idea of wearing a volunteer's tunic. These were black and tans dressed casually, they had no particular uniform, and he got a military tunic and he wore it. And he stood right here for the command posters. Um, uh, command post was Cart Brigade, Flame Column, IRA, 
and on this road to date 17 terrorist officers of the British forces on 28th of November 1920. <coughs> so he stood here. He put um, ten men in, at that rock overlooking the road. There was six men over across. Did you see that little monument over? I do, about uh, 20 yards away yeah. from the main the, road. There were, that was, their job was to try and block any auxiliary who would be trying to rush up the rock. That was their job. And if you see, there was really no escape if things went wrong. There was... That could hardly escape, and then back where the big monument is, there's another group of volunteers there, and further down the road there was another group, five or six more, in case a third lorry should come along. So it was well planned. <coughs> he stood here, and he had he stood right here, but where standing, and there was three men there inside the fence. Three of the best men. Do you see? Well, the other volunteers had had undergone a, undergone a week of very hard training, so they were well as, as geared up as could be for the event. At about four o'clock in the evening, the signal uh, signal two lorries approaching. These auxiliaries were the well-trained, tough ex-soldiers. We don't know what, what that career was between leaving the army and joining the. And there were uh, um, recruiters as auxiliary RIC men from the RIC regular members resigned in 1920. We don't know what that career was between leaving the army and joining the RIC as auxiliaries. The British Army would not disclose what what their um, their lifestyle or their life between the, uh, that period. They will eventually, I think, in the hundred years has elapsed or something. So that we don't know really for, for the... But they, they were, were tough. They were tough. No, 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 they were tough and apparently ruthless killers. Well-trained, intelligent, expert fighters, all I could expect. And um, so that uh, <coughs> they, were, and they didn't believe that there was anyone comparable to them in the, in the Republican side, in the, in the volunteer side which probably they were quite right. They had, had a free hand with over two months and uh, they were getting a fairly good rate up on the British papers. So th- that was this problem, didn't they? It was quite a major task really to take them on. So anyway, he stood fear for where we are and he, had, he kept a hand grenade in his hand, stood quietly with his right. And when the lorry came on, they obviously thought he was one of their own, probably out from anyway, and they slowed down they talked him and when they come in in range he lobbed, suddenly lobbed the, lobbed the bomb into the front of the lorry and the fight was on and these three men jumped out on the road immediately and along with Barry they rushed the lorry and they had a hand to head fight in the middle of the road and these fellows fighting and built on the top of the rock and uh, probably fighting at the second lorry as well and he tried to reverse the lorry I felt he turned the lorry at the at the cross there and head back to McCroom for more help and the lorry the wheel lorry got, got stuck in the dike do you see he reversed the lorry the wheel went into the dike and he got stuck so he, he jumped he made up himself. Some say he went he jumped into over the fence into heard the cattle, but he escaped. But he was caught by the by the by the local uh, volunteers on the way to McCroom and executed. It didn't last very long, they made no attempt to surrender these nine men in the first lorry. They were they were yelling and cursing and shouting. But they were not attacking surrendering until they were all put out. <coughs> he started loading his rifles in. And he looked up and he could see the second lorry above in the, where the monument is. And he could see hands up in the air. Some of the auxiliaries, especially in the second lorry, put their hands in the air. And others kept lying down with their guns and their up ready. And when the six, six volunteers came out of that ambush place, they to take the surrender. And the auxiliaries opened fire again and shot through them. But he actually saw it happening from here. <coughs> and he gave one of the most famous roars, or what you call it, shouts to get back into position and to keep firing. Until himself, it's a step. 
So he reloaded, reloaded guns as quickly as he could, and he went up the road himself into three more men crouching on their way up the road, and that was the opening fight from the rocks, of course. And um, the Arctis, I put this under the second team, the second lorry, but he wouldn't, take, he wouldn't hear any more of it. Once another was enough, he kept shouting, keep firing. The whole lot of it in it. He wiped them out. Eight or nine of them were found there, and that little plot of ground the following morning. It was there, they were found, and I think one of them was inside the fence. No, there was 17 bodies, or 17 phones anyway, and uh, one of them wasn't dead. He lived, he lived as an invalid afterwards. And, uh, uh yeah. it was <coughs> when the fighting stopped, when he blew the whistle, when the fighting stopped, the double came out of their positions and lined up on the road, apparently. And, um, the first thing he did, which is not official reason to do anything, is that he, in, he inspected the rifles of his own men to make sure that they had fired some shot. These fellows were, might have been suffering from stage fright when the fight started. You would not have that first experience of war. And uh, when the waiting was over, some of them were in shock, suffering from shock. Shock was sitting in his mouth, that's all. They, were just, they hadn't been used to that kind of thing. The auxiliary themselves had been well used to war and seeing dead people and blood and people blown to bits and so had Daddy himself but these young fellows never experienced that and never sat so um, he lined them up he reprimanded a few that were getting wobbly and he, he lined them up and matched them up and down a couple of times through the dead houses that's all what kind of a man was Tom Barry where 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 did he live he where lived. did he grow up he was born in Killargan County Kerry and when he was very young they moved to Roscarbury his father was in the RAC and and he joined the British Army in a young fella and fought in Mesopotamia, that's Iraq now, in Kuwait in that area. And um, I believe he was wounded, but when the bar was over, then he came back to, and he was uh, got in touch with his, the volunteers, well, his mother was a Republican, from a Republican family in Arcock, O'Brien. Historian and writer Mida Ryan. Tom Barry was such an important figure. In fact, I would regard him almost on a par with De Valera and Michael Collins. But for some reason, he has not been recognised over the years. And uh, I uh, had written a book previously, which was called The Tom Barry Story. But this was uh, commissioned by Mercer Press and was only a small book. But then uh, a controversy arose within the past, I suppose, number of years, three, four or five years, as to whether or not there was a false surrender at Kilmichael. It was mainly the Kilmichael ambush. And this uh, led me to decide to do this book. The reason I felt that I would do it was because my uncle was one of the boys of, Kil- of Kilmichael. I had interviewed Tom Barry extensively. I had done a series of about nine interviews. I had also interviewed many of the men who had fought in Kilmichael as well as the other ambushes and uh, because of this I felt a fuller biography of Tom Barry needed to be done. Historian Mida Ryan now gives her views on what happened at the ambush at Kilmichael. Um, he said himself there are no good or bad shots at 15 yards range in other words you can't miss he put them so close uh, that they couldn't miss and um, he did say afterwards that I suppose it wasn't a very fair battle to 
put men in such a position. Uh, just to briefly tell you about the ambush, uh, they were uh, the um, country round was being raided by this group of uh, notorious uh, auxiliaries that came into McCroom Castle, and uh, they were raiding the country. They used to beat up people, they'd shoot people at sight, and it was a rather um, disturbing for the citizens of the area. So he decided that they should be taken on. So he, um, nobody else knew about it, but he had these men trained, 36 riflemen, and uh, they had 36 rounds each. They had only so much ammunition, and it was either win or killed or be killed. And uh, they went out there that morning. They had uh, their men, the confession, their confessions had been held at um, a, a, on the side of the road, and they walked all night through the lashing November rain. It was extremely cold. Uh, they had the last meal around 6 o'clock, and they got into their positions. He divided them into three sections, and he subdivided another section. And uh, they lay in wait all day, and uh, they were cold, they were wet, they were hungry. But uh, they just had to stay there. There was just a bucket of tea um, that was brought down from the local uh, local house um, and uh, some vegetable cake, which was all the, these people had, uh, possibly because people weren't very well off at the time. As they lay there, it began to freeze so that the clothes froze on their bodies and they lay there in wait. They were about to uh, leave because he felt that um, the um, auxiliaries were not coming. Meanwhile, there was just uh, almost at a, at a uh, I would say, a very opportune moment would have been for the auxiliaries a pony and trap came in some a group who were late coming arrived but Tom Barry just got them out of the way at uh, five minutes fast four the auxiliaries came and um, the battle started uh, he stood out on the road uh, very bravely threw a mills bomb into the open top lorry and um, the ambush began uh, there was it was sharp as he said sharp uh, uh, short sharp and bloody it was uh, very uh, must have been uh, dreadful for all of them Mita Ryan continues here talking about the false surrender and then uh, when uh, at, at a certain stage they the volunteers, uh, the auxiliaries felt that they were being beaten, so they shouted, we surrender, we surrender. And the uh, <coughs> volunteers decided to pick up that surrender call, and they stood up, three of them were uh, were wounded, two of them were killed on the spot, um, one died later. There has been controversy down through, through the years because then, uh, just to move it forward and to put it in a nutshell, all the, the um, men there were wiped out. Now, one was found that uh, the following day his pulse was beating and he did survive. But because it was, uh, because of the way it happened, it has been said, this is only in recent years, that there was no false surrender, that what happened was there was a surrender which Barry didn't accept, which meant that uh, all the men were killed, in other words, that Barry killed prisoners. Now, this would certainly have been a black mark against Tom Barry and against his men 
if this was so, and it is what has been uh, talked about in recent years and, in fact, believed in certain circles. Again, because I had interviewed so many of the men who were there and they all talked about this false surrender. Researcher and writer Father John Chisholm travelled to West Cork in 1961 to record the memories of the survivors and he examines and discusses here the conflicting accounts given to him of the false surrender. As I was going around talking to them, there was quite a lot of discussion of a famous ambush called Kilmichael. It took place in 1920 in November. And there you had... Uh, something over 30 of the volunteers and they took on something like was around about 18 of these auxiliaries now these auxiliaries would have been veterans from world war one and they would have been highly trained and they were had the reputation of being sharpshooters anyway it was tom barry who organized that particular ambush in november 1920 and it was very successful in that they pretty well liquidated the auxiliaries. Some of them were... But they were all, I think... There's only one of them that managed to survive after getting cured from all his wounds or whatever. But it was a brilliant ambush from the IRA point of view... And it certainly rocked the people in London, the British, that these auxiliaries could be liquidated like that. Now, there was one episode in it that struck me as questionable. Tom Barry said that at a given point during the shooting, the auxiliaries shouted, we surrender, we surrender. They had been attacked from two sides of the road at the, in that position at Kilmichael. And the one side, there was kind of a rocky mound and the auxiliaries, the um, IRA men, they were in there, in furs, bushes and rocks and they were firing down on the auxiliaries who jumped out of the tenders, the first tender that came, there were two tenders involved, and they were fighting from the protection of the tender. And then this, one of the tenders was put out of action by a hand grenade that Tom Barry just threw into it, and that seems to have destroyed that one. The second one, though, it tried to reverse and to go back to McCroom, but it got stuck in the side of the road and they jumped out and they were lying on the road and shooting at the the volunteers and they uh, killed three of them. Now, what Tom Barry says is that at a given point when... The, they opened fire on the southern side. That was the low-lying part. They started with the ones up in the rocks and the mound. And that they found themselves, that's the auxiliaries, being shot at from both sides. And they, 
so that there was no hope of success. So they downed arms and they said, we surrender, we surrender. With that, three of my men, says Barry, stood up and immediately the auxiliaries ripped out revolvers and shot three of his men. And then he gave them orders to shoot, that's his men, to shoot, and they continued shooting until they, they, there was no further action from the auxiliaries. Yeah. Now that became, in my mind, rather dubious that there was this thing that Barry called a false surrender. He describes that in Gorilla Days in Ireland, but in his first report of the struggle, there's no mention of false surrender at all. That comes afterwards. I could see that the motive for that story of the false surrender could have arisen because there was an outrage and outcry because of the way in which they found the bodies of the auxiliaries. They were bashed, the brains of some of them were bashed out, seems with the revolver, the rifle butts. Uh, they had, it seems that when the uh, volunteers saw that three of their men had been shot by the auxiliaries, uh, that they just bashed them up. And then there was a case of some of them that were wounded, the auxiliaries, and they were simply executed, were shot through the head. And there was one of, of the fighters there who said that when the thing seemed to have been over, he saw one guy, that auxiliary, lying on the road, and he said he wasn't dead, he was wounded. So I went up to Tom Barry and I said, what am I to do? I said, shoot him. I said, well, what did you do? So I said, well, I had to take my revolver and I shot him through the head. Now, he went over then, I remember, I could see it so vividly in his, in his kitchen. He went over to the window and they had these window shutters that would open out on hinges. And he opened out this and he took out the revolver. So that's the revolver I used. I noticed that he had it well oiled, well protected all the years. Was this Ned Young? No. Who was no, it? No, it was called Jack O'Sullivan. Yeah. And Jack O'Sullivan, he was the guy that um, was told by Tom Baddy to do it. Now, in the case of Ned Young, he found one of the, well, one of the auxiliaries surrendered to him. And the uh, the auxiliary said, "What am I to do?" And they said, "Oh, they tell you what to do down the, down there." So he was down, and they just shot him. So there was no question. You see, Tom Baddy was trying to make out that the reason why these were all shot was inaction because of the false surrender. Mm-hmm. But there was no. I got the impression that that was made up. And I asked, let's say, some of them, I remember asking Jack O'Sullivan, was there a false surrender? He said, no, it was a clean fight. Yeah. Yeah. There was no false surrender. 
So Tom Batty seems to have put that, made up that story to account for the liquidation of all the auxiliaries. They were all, except the one that survived for a while from his wounds. Uh, but the, to explain the state of them and all the rest of it, uh, he wanted to justify it. And the reason was that they were, it was a false surrender. Yeah. And therefore, we liquidated them. I could see myself that Tom Barry was in a difficult position, that if he, once he started that ambush, there was no question if the auxiliaries surrendered that they could take them as prisoners. They were a flying column. They couldn't drag prisoners around with them. They would have... It's been impossible in those circumstances. Mm. So if any of them surrendered, he had either to let them go mm. free. He couldn't carry them around, drag them around as prisoners. He had either to let them go free or just liquidate them. Yeah. If he let them go free, he would be releasing potential witnesses if any of his men in subsequent actions were caught or captured. Because he's have the, these guys will say, oh, he was at Kilmichael. Yeah. I remember him. And the next thing goes, he'd be summarily executed. So I could see that Tom Barry, having started it, and he told the men at the beginning, it's either them or us. This is a fight at the end. Did you approach Tom Barry? I did. And what did he say to you? Now, I had known from the <laughs> auxiliaries that I was, not the auxiliaries, but from the volunteers that I had met, that Tom Barry was a very fiery character and that you wouldn't want to cross him. So since I knew I should visit him anyway, I don't know whether he was on the list or not, but I certainly was going to visit him and I made an appointment and I met him in Cork in a hotel there. We had coffee together, but I was very careful. I, by this time, it was towards the end of my work down there, and I had got a lot of information, and I had come to the conclusion that this business of false surrender at Kilmichael didn't seem to stand up. But I wasn't going to go into controversy with him about it. I simply asked him about Kilmichael, and he didn't enter into any detailed discussion of it with me. He simply said, that account of Kilmichael was published in the uh, Irish newspaper, was it the Irish press, or what, yeah, I think it was the Irish press, in a series of articles, and it was never questioned. And then he said, that's history. The DC brothers from Bandon were all in the West Cork flying column. Pat, one of the brothers, was a casualty at Kilmichael Ambush. War of Independence, now you're the other uh, uncles, and, and your father. What was your well, father's uh, first name? Jim. And what part was Jim playing now at this stage? Jim was, he was playing, he was the, he was, the, he scouted all that area. Ronin is Shannon Balnady and when the, the flying column was in action they should bring them across the river that's how they escaped from the Tanzanian Tanzan River they were going 
but they bring them back. They bring them from the northern side over to the south side. You know, there was logistics, whatever they call that particular. Yeah. That was his job, you know. Okay, so... But they were all, they were all on the run, you know. As they used to raid the house and he came back to regularly. And your father was on the run? He was, and my uh, another brother, he was on the run. He was a man that organised the ambush in Noosestown. And Jack, another brother, he was in jail. In Spike Island? He was in Spike Island, yeah. That's why he swam. He escaped from Spike Island and swam over the cove. Did he? Not bad going. No, very. But why, where was he caught and what, what he, he, was, he was caught here in Bandon. I see. Um, now, which brother was shot dead <clears throat> in He was And how, was he your, your father, your father's elder or younger? <laughs> younger, he was only 16. But how could he be, yeah, I mean... How did Barry leave a 16-year-old with a gun down in the... Because I tell you why, he was a good shot with a gun. He was deadly accurate with a gun. Yeah. And then because on the predicted day, he was after getting teeth out. And uh, Barry said he wasn't coming, you know. But he followed the column, you know. He said, I want to go. So the people that Barry had that killed Michael were all experts, they were all marksmen. Because he felt that, but that's what they needed there. Because their ammunition was scarce. Yeah. They didn't banging away like, he wanted every shot to count. And he wanted to make sure that he had men, that they made sure that every shot counted. And as a result, that's why it worked out successfully. Successfully there for them, you know. And Pat Easter was one of those. But Pat lost his life. He did. And did that, did that take an effect on the family then? It did a huge effect on them. It had an effect on them so far as revenge is mine, said the Lord. They spent a bit of time then watching their, my, my father and another guy. I think he was one of the Crowleys from Kilbritton. They spent their time trying to get a few guys isolated and abandoned, and they were responsible for shooting a few of the uh, the army fellas, you know. Yeah. But it uh, affected their father very much and, and mother because when they buried him in Castletown, the my father and his mother. They walked all the way from Kilmax and McKee to Castletown. I see. That's a nice little walk and walk back again. Liam Daisy couldn't be there because they were afraid that he'd been on the run. Moy wasn't there, Jack, they were all on the run as well. Well, we've come to the end, and I hope you enjoyed listening to the voices of those who were passionate about telling the story of the troubles in West Cork and the Kilmichael ambush. If you would like to hear the full interviews, you can find the recordings on our website www.irishlifeandlore.com. I'm Morris O'Keefe, and thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.